VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. It's Monday, September the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonts King is sitting in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with Fonts when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air to discuss a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Fonts, do me a favor. I've got a bit of music under the under my audio. If you could take that out, that'd be great. All right, so what a mess. The remnants of Hurricane Earl left around the Avalon Peninsula. Some parts got up to 200 millimeters of rain. Hopefully, you and your property got away unscathed. But we see lots of reports of flooding this morning. Some of the major traffic routes have been shut down due to just how deep the water is across the road, down around Corpus Christi, for instance. So, as I heard Brian say in the newscast, if you think the water might be too deep for safe passage of your vehicle, just turn around and take it on later today, hopefully when the waters subside, and back into the river as opposed to out on the road. I mean, there's a lot of debris in my backyard. No big deal. Easy cleanup. And thankfully, as far as I know, we didn't uh, suffer any damage. But I saw a video of a couple of young fellas that were fooling around and playing in the storm surge in Beachy Cove. Now, hopefully this bit of the storm has passed us. You know, there's a bit more rain and wind and fog in the forecast for today. But hopefully that goes away. But I don't know if you saw it. It was, it was shared by Mark Dobbin. So the boys are down playing in the storm surge. And, I mean, it's just... Taking your life in your own hands, literally. I mean, the North Atlantic, especially in that raging fashion, is merciless. So they were having a good laugh and running away from the waves as it got up around their waist and into their chest. But boy, oh boy, if you see the storm surging, stay away. Anyway, you want to talk about anything on that vein? Let's go. A couple of quick notes in the sporting world before we get into it. Congratulations to uh, Bay Roberts native Riley Mercer. Riley's brother, Dawson Mercer, of course, plays for the New Jersey Devils. Uh, Riley's on his way to the Montreal Canadiens rookie camp on a pro tryout. So it's a family affair with the Mercers. They've got a sister, too, who's just a tremendous player, incredible skater. So good luck to young Riley at the Habs pro tryout or the rookie tryout. Okay, we've now found out from Hockey NL that there's nine new inductees into the Provincial Hockey Hall of Fame. Great list. Some people that I worked with, some players that I played with and against. But Brian Casey, he was a super hockey player, played some pro out in Europe for the, quite a long time, played in Slovakia and, and uh, the Danish Pro League. He played for the, uh, Team Canada at the Spengler Cup as well. Jack Casey, who has been the driving force between, uh, behind Caps Minor Hockey, has done a lot of work throughout the world of amateur and minor hockey. Congratulations. Steve Cleary, great friend of mine, a guy I played with for a long time inside the Celtics Minor Hockey Association. He went on to play with the Junior 50s. Didn't like that too much, Steve. But he played 13 years of senior hockey here in the province. He was a six-time Avalon East Defenseman of the Year, four-time Herder Champion. So congratulations, Steve. Richly deserved. Tremendous hockey player. Kirby Doomrask, who we played against in junior. He played a lot of senior hockey. won four Herders as well. So congratulations to him. Paul Glavin, who's out in Grand Falls, Windsor Cataracts. Driving force behind the Cataracts. And of course, went to play in four Allen Cup Canadian Senior Hockey Semifinal Games. Eventually won the championship in, 19, or pardon me, in 2017. Congratulations, Dennis Lang, of course, Gander Flyers. Uh, Joe Lane, who's been out in Port of Basque, involved in hockey for some 40 years. Rebecca Russell, who played NCAA hockey at St. Lawrence University, the St. Lawrence Saints, racked up a whole load of scoring titles, played pro with Calgary out in the Women's Professional Hockey League. Of course, 
2018 began coaching the Clarenville, uh, Car- the Clarenville Caribous and actually won a herder as the coach, being the becoming the first female to do so. And the late Robin Short, of course, the editor of the sports page at the Telegram for some 36 years. Well, he was at the Telegram for 36 years, was the sports editor for a long time. Robin Short, now to be invested in the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. Congratulations to all hands. What were you doing when you were 19? Spaniard Carlos Alcaraz became the youngest number one player in the world when he beat Casper Root from Norway in the U.S. Open final yesterday in Flushing Meadows, New York, and Queens. So get a load of this. I mean, it's one thing to be a top-flight pro in team sport because you've got others around you can lean on, but there's no one out there but you and your racket and the ball when you're playing pro tennis. So at 19, the youngest player to ever be world number one, but he joins a list, a pretty impressive list, in teenagers who actually won a men's Grand Slam. Michael Chang, no one's ever going to beat this record. He won the French when he was uh, 17 years of age. And some, listen to these legends. Boris Becker won at Wimbledon at 17. Mats Wielander, the French at 17. Bjorn Borg, the French at 18. Rafael Nadal, the French at 19. Sampras at 19 years and 29 days. And Carlos Alcaraz joins that illustrious list. 19 years and 129 days the world number one. And, of course, wins in New York. And yesterday marked the 21st anniversary of 9-11. You know, I think it's one of those cliches, but everyone remembers where they were on that fateful day. I certainly remember where I was, and the visuals are etched in our memories. So it's, it changed the world forever, I think. I mean, just look at the war on terror that came on the heels of the 9-11 attacks in New York City, the falling of the Twin Towers, and of course at the Pentagon and a, pe- a field in Pennsylvania. And it, traveled the way we, it changed the way we travel. It changed just about everything. You know, there's... A lot of attention gets uh, given to the town of Gander. And, of course, with 7,000 stranded passengers in that town, double the size of the population, a big deal. And we all know the successes of Come From Away. And there's a great documentary, I think it's called We Come From Away, about the humanity and the kindness and the generosity of the folks in Gander and surrounding areas. It's worth watching and maybe an opportunity to recapture some of that spirit that surrounded those fateful days. But there's other towns. I mean, St. John's, Stephenville, I think Deer Lake as well, accepted pastors, and a lot of little towns around Gander, of course. But it's a remarkable occasion. 21 years ago, just to show just how quickly time flies. Amazing stuff. Just another couple of notes in the world of today in history in the United States. A couple of curious overlaps here. Today in 1953, Jacqueline Lee Bouvier married Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy in Newport, Rhode Island. But also today in history regarding the president, now then-president, 1962, he gave a speech at Rice University declaring that the U.S. is going to get a man on the moon and safely bring him back by the end of the decade. And the quote, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And in space travel, today in 1992, the 50th space shuttle mission took place and the first black woman aboard, May Carol Jemison, on Endeavour, 1992. A couple of curious overlaps there. And, of course, a lot of the world was consumed with the coverage of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. The story's well told. Uh, We had a couple of calls making remarks on her legacy, her life of 96 years, and, of course, 70 years as the monarch. It's extraordinary stuff. And, you know, some people were quite cross that anyone would dare to talk about anything but the positives of her life. Uh, Look, I admired her, and I'm not a monarchist. But I did watch some of the coverage. I just couldn't get away from it for a little while there on Saturday afternoon. Watching the Queen be brought from her beloved Balmoral to Edinburgh. And, of course, she is going to be there at the Palace of Holyrood House. Uh, then off to St. Gilles uh, Cathedral. It's going to remain there until Tuesday for public viewing. Then to be flown to London. 
Uh, she'll lay in state of Buckingham Palace on Wednesday. And then the funeral will happen on West, uh, Westminster Abbey on the 19th of September. But anything in that vein, whether it be the future of the monarchy, the life of Queen Elizabeth II, what becomes of the Queen's passing here in Canada, what that means for us, we're happy to take it on. However you see fit. All right, and we know that they're back to school. So uh, Trent Langdon, the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association, is going to be coming on at about 9.30, we understand, to see what kind of start we got off to. There's lots of different angles inside the K-12 system. Had some emails, not surprised, about the fact that some of the supports and teacher vacancies and other things that were some of the hiccups, which I think is an annual rite of passage, you know, iron out some of the wrinkles so that we get off to a good start, whether that be admin, teachers, and, of course, of course most importantly, the students. But we can take it on. And in the world of university, you know, there's all kinds of backlogs, many of them caused by the pandemic and other contributing factors, you know, whether it be at the passport offices, and that's not gone away. But another layer of complexity regarding international students at universities across the country, there's some 163,000 applications for study permits. So they may ha not be able to get on campus and into class until the middle of this month or maybe into October. And that happens right here. We spoke with the president of Memorial University, Dr. Vian Timmons, on this program last week. And they're facing that same issue right here at our School of Higher Learning. Remember, you know, the international students also pay a pretty sizable tuition when compared to domestic students. And also, when we talk about immigration and people with the skills that we need, graduates from university are exactly that. So the issues regarding the backlogs at the passport offices and study permits for international students and up and down the line, it has not gone away. And yes, the vast majority of it caused by the pandemic, but that's not an excuse. It might be a reason, but anyway. On that front, and some of these things were picked up quite clearly by the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Mr. Pierre Polyev, an Ottawa-based MP. It was a landslide victory. Now, when you think back, Mr. Poliev announced his intentions to become or want to become the next leader really early in the game. Generally speaking, there's a little more time taken to test the waters, see what kind of support you have out there, whether it be amongst your own caucus, the opportunity to raise money, looking to see who might also be in the running. But he announced very early on, and it worked for him. It does look like the party has chosen a certain direction. Whether that's a good or bad one, I'll leave that up to you in your opinion. But the victory was a whopping big victory. Got 68.15% on the first ballot and just swept everyone away. The closest rival, Jean Chouet, didn't come close. He got 16.07%. Mr. Polia was able to raise a ton of money in excess of $6 million in his leadership campaign. So whatever you want to talk about on that vein, I mean, some of the policies he put forward, you know, uh, firing the Bank of Canada governor, which he doesn't have the authority to do, the Prime Minister does not. You know, ridding the country of using dictator oil and relying on our own fuels, which is, you know, they talk about freedom, but that's not necessarily freedom when you tell private business what they have to do uh, when it comes to importing a product. So anyway, I found that one to be curious. Then it's the government jargon legislation, which I don't necessarily understand, but maybe that's the point. And then you talk about passports and the carbon tax. And he says he'll axe the carbon tax. What that looks like and what it means for success for the Conservative Party, I guess it's anybody's guess. But last go around, about two-thirds of the country voted for a party with a price on pollution or a plan for climate change. But Mr. Poliev, congratulations, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And it was a distinct choice. There was very different candidates, whether it be with uh, Miss Lewis or Monsieur Charest or Babar or Poliev, but the Conservatives are all in. 
And not only was it 68.15% on the first ballot, out of the 338 federal ridings in the country, he won 300. So, I mean, can't be denied that that was an intense victory for Mr. Foliev. But now, brings upon what he does as leader. It's one thing to fire up the base. It's quite another to win a general election. You know, the Liberals' best asset at one point was the Prime Minister. Is that the case today? Probably not. Even though he says he intends to stay on through the next general election, it's probably going to be feisty to be very gentle in how I think this is going to unfold. It's probably going to be extremely vicious. But if you want to take it on, because it's a big story regarding federal politics in the country. And speaking of the carbon tax, we really need to find out what it's going to look like with the provincial government negotiating with the feds about ap- applying a carbon tax in this province. We had our own bilateral agreement, and you know how we apply it. We put it on fuels, but not on home heating fuels. So the province is hoping that home heating fuels can remain exempt, and we can all only help exactly that. You know, for the average consumer who uses oil to heat their home, it's about another 900 bucks ish per year. There's limited opportunity for the province to do much about it. The federal plan doesn't have a whole lot of flexibility, but the premier will point to rural areas, elderly folks who are indeed on oil, plus asking about an, uh, the $50 million that was requested to help people transition from oil furnaces to electricity. Whether or not you want to do it, I don't know. But even when there's supports in place, it still takes a pretty significant amount of money out of pocket to make that conversion. So that's some of the carbon tax issues that we're all keeping a close eye on. And then, you know, on the federal level, it's about federal health care transfer dollars. Every province has their handout. Every province wants more. And, you know, the last time around it was for long-term, well, it was earmarked primarily for long-term care and mental health supports and services. This go-around, it's going to be so competitive, and it's hard to know how this shakes out because every province is also clamoring for health care professionals. And this is not to ease the pain and the burden and the pressures on the provincial government or uh, Dr. Megan Hayes or the premier or the minister responsible or anyone involved or the college, but the competition's real. And you know full well some of that will be about recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals when the ne- next round of healthcare transfer dollars go out. And then on that note, and Eastern Health probably has no choice, but it's an awful lot to say out loud, is they told people to stay away from the emergency, emergency rooms unless it's absolutely necessary. And what constitutes absolutely necessary? It's a difficult one. I mean, we all are painfully aware of, what is it, 125? Uh, actually, I now have a family doctor. I have my first appointment in about a decade coming up this week. But there's around 125,000 people don't have a family doctor. So when the emergency room becomes the next go-to, then to stay away unless it's absolutely necessary is a difficult decision to make as an individual or a family member. At the exact same time, they're talking about the staffing shortages at the collaborative care clinics, specifically the one on Monday Pond Road. Reducing hours, won't be able to see the number of patients that they have booked uh, some days. We've all seen the lineups outside the clinic. It sounds like a great idea to have all those healthcare professionals under one roof so that when you show up and you're triaged, so to speak, you see who you need to see. You might not need to see a GP, so then you'll see the next person with the appropriate level of training. Nurse practitioner, licensed practical nurse, you know the deal. So stay away unless absolutely necessary. You know, call 811. For some things, 811 is a valuable service but certainly might not be what the doctor ordered, pun intended, but stay away from the ERs. And then don't get the folks going in some places like Whitburn, for instance, into their 10th week with no emergency room services. So however you want to discuss those particular whoppers, let's do it. 
And I guess to stay away from some of these things, maybe be a bit healthier. I'm trying. I'm absolutely trying. Making a little bit of headway. So, again, there's so many massive issues. But I'm not surprised just how many people are reaching out to me about the tax on sugary drinks. I, I, I know it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not the biggest issue facing people of the province or Canadians. But that's out there. And now I see the opposition is calling on the government to do more to support the dairy industry to ease the burden of the price of a two-liter of milk at the shop. How government goes about that, I'm not really sure, but that's out there as well. And what we eat and what we drink. Love to hear from some bird hunters. When we talk about avian flu and just how prevalent it is, we've seen thousands of birds, wash, birds washing up on the beaches. So it's a minimal risk to humans. We also know that. But are you going to hunt and eat a bird knowing what we know about avian flu? Like, I don't think I'm going to. I just don't think that's something that I'm interested in this year with all the avian flu that's going around. But if you want to take that on, as a bird hunter, please do chime in because your perspective much more in tune and informed than mine on that front. All right, so we mentioned the potential for some flooding in and around town, the Avalon Peninsula, where we got walloped over the weekend. Interesting turn of events for the residents of Mud Lake. We all know the threshold for communities to vote on whether or not they'd like to be resettled. The threshold used to be 90%, now it's 75%, but it's been waived in full for residents of Mud Lake. So they'll be eligible for some $270,000 for homes with three people, two hundred sixty for homes with two, two fifty for homes with one person, because we know the extraordinary flooding that they suffered back in 2017. Or was it in 17? Yes, 2017. Still making its way through the courts about compensation, there was an independent report that suggested or determined that the flooding was caused by natural causes. Ice blocking the river was what they pointed to, which, of course, forced the water over the banks. But the folks in Mud Lake and surrounding, or pardon me, not surrounding area, Mud Lake specifically, uh, that story, they've waived the threshold. If you'd like to get relocated and the monies that come with it, that's how I read the story anyway. We can take it on. Uh, let's see if we get a mirror back about traffic off the top of their fonts. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOSIM.com. Let's get the week off to a good start. That only happens when you call, or we're going to listen to a lot of me. Uh, today, 1996, Cheryl Crow. I don't think we've ever played Cheryl Crow in this program up until this morning. She released this single, If It Makes You Happy. Your call makes me happy. Don't go away. <laughs> The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's see how we do. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Holly. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Doing well, thanks. I appreciate your patience this morning. What's on your mind? Oh, um, basically, I don't, I don't want to complain, and I'm not complaining, but uh, basically going out of the Goulds, um, it's next to impossible to get out of the Goulds. Kilbride is blocked off there by Ruby Line, and um, Ruby Line is backed up. The back line is backed up. Dooling's line is backed up, and the Robert E. Memorial was backed up. I was on 
uh, Ruby Line since 8.10 until 9.35 or 9.40. And then some miracle happened and I started moving. Yeah, I'm not sure. I suppose it's simply the amount of water on the road or maybe some snarls that took place in front of you. I've seen many reports of a, a lady I follow on Twitter left her home in the ghouls, and 20 minutes later she had not arrived in Southlands. I guess that was maybe her final destination. So it's been a big snarl out there this morning. They've turned around traffic in different locations, uh, including here in St. John's and around Corpus, Corpus Christi is one notable. So I guess when yeah. conditions are what they are and the inability yeah. for the storm drains to take on this surge of water from the rivers and the rains, so I guess that's where we find ourselves this morning. Absolutely. I just wanted to call and let people know. Um, honestly, I thought that there was an accident up at the top of Ruby Line, and I called in to uh, see if, if there was, to see if anyone had reported on it because there wasn't anything on the radio. <laughs> but um, thank you so much. I just wanted to let you know. Yeah, we're happy to do it. And, you know, I, I guess when people need to... I want to inform fellow listeners where they see a traffic snarl or, or the like. We're happy to report it as quick as we can. I'm sure the newscast will include some of these warnings for the traveling public, and I appreciate you making time for the show. Safe travels out there today, Holly. Thank you so much, and I hope you have an absolutely wonderful day, Patty, and uh, enjoy the rest of it. Same to you, Holly. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Already. Bye-bye. Uh, so, Fonts, how are we doing with those other calls? If we have those, we're going to get us get back here. I know Trent Langdon from the NLTA is going to join us after the 10 o'clock news, so let's make sure we get Mr. Langdon queued up. Uh, let's go to line number two. Uh, good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi. Hi there. This is Rosemary calling from Fusco. Hi, Rosemary. There's an update on Leo. Yeah, let's have it. I, I got a note over the weekend, but let's hear okay. from you. He's home, and he's perfectly healthy, and he's wonderful. And thanks to you guys and everybody else across Newfoundland and St. John's everywhere, we got him after 15 days of being out in the wilderness. It's a great story. I can't even remember who sent me the note to tell me that Leo had made his way home. So he just That's came home on his own, right? One that Jackie Hickey did it. Pardon me? One that our friend Jackie, Jack Hickey from Torbay did it. Oh, absolutely. It was Jack. You're right. 100%. So my understanding is Leo just came home. No, well, he didn't. He, just, he, showed, he showed up... Uh, he ran through a neighbor's yard of a, what we call the top of the pinch, just outside of the trove, like just up on the hill, right? And when the boss spotted him, he said, well, this looks like Leo. And he called my son, and my son went over, and it was Leo. And then we got Vanessa, and the only one in the world, Leo run to Vanessa. And he ran right to him, jumped up in the rounds, and here we have Leo. And he had his full bed. He slept till 7.30 this morning, and he's absolutely amazing, Patty. It's such good news. Enough. It is amazing, really. Really, because you never give up. I don't care, really. You guys are amazing. I can't stress enough how much media helped us with this. You know, just by getting it out there, right? You know, I can't. Anyway, I won't keep it. I know you're busy, but thank you for my heart, my family's hearts, for everything people do and all the prayers that were sent our way. It was amazing. I'm really pleased to hear it. And when Jack uh, sent me the note, I a smile came to my face because we could all hear it in your voice. You were so worried about Leo and whether or not you'd ever see him again. So... A purebred Sheltie now home. That's the good news, and I really appreciate the update this morning, Rosemary. One last note. Jack Hickey is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet in this world. He came down here with his drone. He was down here in the early mornings with his drone. Like, he is, he helped, you know, and it was so good. He's just a good person. i got to put that out there, too, because he's amazing. Jack's a good fella, former firefighter, uh, and, of course, uh, part of the search and rescue team. So Jack's done a lot of cool stuff in the community for a long, long time. Firefighters in the world, all those combat challenges that he won. Oh yes, that's God. right. Yeah, he was a record holder for a while, if I'm not he mistaken. Was, yeah, yeah, he was. You know, Patty, I won't keep it. God love you and everybody else. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time, Rosemary. Congratulations. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye bye. Um, <clears throat>
Interestingly, you know, and we mentioned the fact that Mr. Poliev had won the CPC uh, leadership race, landslide victory, you know, run 330 of 338 federal ridings, so no denying it, all on the first ballot, over 68%. Uh, so that does have an implication for the party, its followers, its faithful, and like I mentioned, I think this is, the true, for, is true for every party. It's one thing for a leader to win a leadership contest, then of course to expand the voting base to attempt to win a general election. That's just standard politics. That's not a swipe at anybody, one party, one person. That's exactly how it works. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. And when we come back, we will indeed be speaking with the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Good morning, Trent. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you this morning? I'm doing well, thanks. Great. So here we are. We've uh, got the first quasi-full week of school behind us in the K-12 system. What can we report? Well, yeah, you know, I think everyone for the first week of school, there's a great deal of excitement as we get back. And, uh, you know, when the honeymoon period starts to wear off, I guess, after the first week or two, we get back to the, to the brass tacks. Um, you know, bottom line, there's, there's a, a stress in the system right now with, with keeping things moving. And there's, there's a bunch of different pieces to that. Uh, for example, um, at the end of last year, we had a substitute teacher shortage. Um, uh, recruitment and retention is, a, is an issue this, uh, right now, but it's been for years, really. Um, uh, we're awaiting the teacher allocation review to come down. Uh, there's just a weight of, of around crowding and stuff in our classrooms. And, uh, again, we, we want to, to sing the praises of, uh, of what's going good. But at the same time, we need to, to be honest uh, with the public and with, with government to say that there's a weight there right now that it's, uh, our classes are large and it's heavy to keep things moving. Moving. There's look. There's always time to talk about the good things in the K to twelve system, which we yeah. should absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding teacher vacancies, it's an annual rate of passage. It happens every single year. I don't know Correct. if it's better or worse this year. So, what can you tell us about the number of vacancies that continue? We know there's one school in Maine that are having a difficult time right. completing right. their full roster, and there's a couple of schools even in the metro region. What what yes. do we know? Well, again, that wouldn't be our mandate to to do talk about specific positions, but uh, to, to my knowledge, uh, the, the school districts are, are working to, to finalize any fall, final hirings and stuff. We're still hearing from some teachers uh, around their hiring concerns. Um, the, the issue with a lot of this, uh, Patty, goes to uh, uh, why does it take so late for teachers to get hired in this province? Uh, for example, we we know uh, it's, it's not al or the allocations aren't dropped until budget is dropped. And when allocations are known well before that, why can't we get hiring started? We're losing qualified people to the mainland because right at the university or even before they finish, they're being hired in, in, in the northern parts of the country and so on. Um, that's one piece. we got to make sure that we, we do what we can to uh, to get our, our, our best and brightest uh, as soon as they come out of university. But also there needs to be incentivization to get to into more uh, remote and rural areas. And why can't we recruit others from other provinces to get here? So more needs to be done uh, to make uh, people understand that this is a, a great place to be and a great place to teach. In fairness, isn't some of the late-in-the-day hiring also to do with the collective bargaining? For instance, a teacher can see a more attractive option come up and with seniority apply for it, even if they already have secured a job, whether it be as a replacement or a full-time <laughs> permanent teacher. Doesn't that actually factor in as well? Yeah, well, yes. It, it, there are impacts in that regard that there's delays for for various positions, and uh, that is built in. I agree, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's uh, it's it's a broader picture here right now where uh, we need to make sure that that the. Um, 
hiring of teachers are prioritized right from the very beginning. And uh, as an association, we support hiring. We support getting it done as soon as possible. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, we, we don't want it to become such a, an intrusive thing that uh, uh, people can't uh, pick and choose where they want to be. But at the same time, people need to be hired and, and we need to move on. Uh, so there's, there's a balance there. And uh, But overall in this province right now, our concern specifically around uh, substitute teacher shortages, which no doubt is going to happen when flu season comes and perhaps COVID increases a bit. Um, there's, a, there's an overall issue, but it's two-pronged in many ways. One is the substitute teacher shortage. The other is um, uh, with regards to uh, actual retention and recruitment in, in specific positions. And specialist areas is another area that's really struggling. There was some confusion about a disjointed substitute teacher list. Not everybody was working off the same list. So can you... Give us some clarification on that front of anything has been addressed. Mm, yeah, well, again, that, that will be the school district's responsibility. Any issues that come to us, we, we pass them right along to the district because we have no control over the substitute list per se. Uh, but again, we're always making recommendations to government and to the school districts of ways to, to improve call-ins and then to ensure that uh, we have qualified people in the classrooms. Now, many people are hoping that COVID is in our rearview mirror. Absolutely. And we talk yeah. about it when it's... Uh, appropriate or required. And on this front, you know, hear a lot about follow the science. At Memorial University, they've instituted mandatory mask wearing in the classrooms and lecture theaters and other places like the Student mm -hmm. Wellness Center and what have you. Not in the K-12 system. I know many people are quite pleased that we don't have some restrictions in place like mandatory masks and what have you. But what are you hearing from your members? Because not everybody thinks that it's gone. Not everybody thinks there's nothing to worry about any longer. Right, yeah, and it's it's a mixed bag, to be honest, Patty. Uh, we, as part of, our, of the NLTA, uh, we're connected with the Canadian Teachers Federation, and that gives us uh, uh, strong affiliation with, with other teacher unions and associations across the country. And the general rule of thumb has been right across the country that schools are going to reopen without a masking mandate. So, uh, that you know, that, that's, that's a good uh, barometer for us. At the same time, we've always supported public health from day one, and public health is, is making the recommendations that schools open right now without a mask mandate, but at the same time, it's very much recommended that people wear them. So people uh, uh, who are, are wearing them are, are choosing to do so. Some people are not. Uh, but again, as I said to start, it's, it's a mixed bag right now of, of people that are so uh, extremely stressed about going to school each day uh, and as a result are, are doing their best to distance, are doing their best to keep their masks on. Uh, but on the other end of it too, we have... Uh, uh, people that uh, are, are done and they just just want to move on from mm -hmm. it and are willing, I guess, to, uh, um, to to go into those environments without their masks. And uh, uh, so it's a mixed bag for sure. I'm sure you're in conversation with not only public health and the national body and the district itself, but some of the, I think it was very vague as they refer to it, as you know, they will keep an eye on it and it's a fluid issue and they may right. indeed have right. to discuss it in the future. And they talked about absences. You know, if indeed you have a sniffle because of an allergy or prolonged mm -hmm. cough because you have mm -hmm. a cold, you can still go to school. But when absences hit X, there might be a chance to review. Can you give us any more information what any of that means? Because it's extremely gray. Well, and you, you nailed it. It is gray, and that, that was our concern from the start. Uh, we, we were uh, we were calling really since since June uh, and July to to get a, a clear plan as to what the return to school plan would be, and uh, and and the directive was at that time. Let's see as we get closer to the school year. But now that the school year has started, 
this we need to keep our thumb on on what's going on day in day out and if there's any significant increase uh, as we move forward and that's always been uh, our approach here is that right now that the plan is masking is recommended and so on but if in significantly changes we're going to have to adjust accordingly and that that's always been our approach here is that safety is number one and we've got to monitor closely and uh, I'm I'm of the mindset and our association is of the mindset that COVID is not gone and uh, we are supporting uh, or we are uh, uh, yeah I guess so supporting public health in, in what they're doing uh, but uh, we know this can turn on a dime and we got to be able to turn on a dime if need be. First to open, last to close. That's been the mantra regarding schools, yes. and yeah. I think rightfully so. Uh, what have we learned insofar as lessons regarding the last two and a half years? The fits and starts, the hybrid system, we're learning from home. What has been learned and what improvements have been put in place just in case we have to go back to one of those uh, different scenarios? Yeah, it, technology has always been a strong suit of our of our province. I think you know our CDLI programs and our and the new Connect Ed. Pro, those are very positive moves, but that they cannot replace in-person learning. So we've got to do what we can to keep operations running face to face in our schools. We've learned that hybrid learning is is virtually impossible to to, to run. Our teachers have have uh, have cried out saying, "Look, we can't do both. We can't teach uh, online and in person at the same time. It doesn't work." Um, but the you know whatever we can do to make sure that the in-person learning continues. No doubt our teachers uh, have really enhanced their, their tech skills. Uh, they've done that out of just pure interest, but also at a need as well in, in recent uh, years. Uh, the, I think the overall resilience of people to, to know that uh, nothing is absolute, that we, we might need to turn pretty quick and make a change if need be. And I think the entire world has been forced into that. So I, I really do believe our, our, our school system is stronger right now as a result of this. Uh, no doubt COVID is still uh, present and, and so on. But as an association, there's still the basics of running a school that, that's, our, that's of concern to us. And that's with regards, to, again, to the class size issue, the crowding that's in our classes. Uh, no matter uh, what's going on, we need to make sure that those basics are identified and that COVID, COVID decision-making cannot forever um, be, uh, be the focus. It needs to be based on what is an effective uh, running of a school and what's the effective allocation. And all of that would be about uh, positive outcomes for the students. You have Absolutely. to think that, every, you know, hopefully every single teacher, that's the primary focus. Of mm -hmm. course, things regarding their own professional supports and training and what have you, that's part of the parcel. But it's the, the, uh, the success of the students. That said, did you play a role in the high school symposium talking about the preparedness for high school graduates to move off into post-secondary if they indeed are choosing to do exactly that? Because that's a nationwide worry about just how prepared students are over what's happened in the last two and a half years. Were you right. involved? We weren't, no, not per se. Uh, we, uh, uh, our primary focus was the K-12 summit that took place, and uh, that was the, the primary focus for us, given that we, we focus on K-12. But at the same time, our high school students, or our, sorry, our high school teachers and administrators, that's, that's their bread and butter, is prepping uh, individuals for, for the workforce. And, uh, and, and coming into a workforce when, when they've had a high school experience that's certainly been tainted by COVID. So uh, a significant piece to play for sure. So when you talk about class size and we talk about class composition, yep. uh, I'm sure you're keeping an eye on the human rights inquiry given the education uh, shortcomings that the Churchill family will say for their son Carter. Mm -hmm. So I think this has a widespread ripple effect. If it comes out that the Human Rights Commission says 
more has to be done and what happened to Carter Churchill can't happen again. That's a class composition conversation. So how close an eye are you ke- were you keeping on that? Yeah, definitely so. I've, I've been watching it personally, and I've been keeping an eye. Uh, you know, out of respect for Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Churchill and Carter, uh, I certainly won't speak to what's going on there. But overall, uh, the resources, uh, we've been, we've been uh, crying for years around the need for resourcing in our schools. And when we say resourcing, we don't mean, you know, c- uh, computers, pens, and pencils. We mean, we mean human resources. And uh, I'm, at the start of every year, uh, there's so many units of teachers held back until there's guaranteed to be uh, bums in seats, as they say. Uh, and we, we're hearing already from teachers who uh, have uh, high 30s in their classrooms. And, and when you start throwing in uh, young people in that class, uh, as we've talked about before, you mentioned composition. There's so much need in that room, let alone the more emergent needs of, say, a brand new student who just moved in from a, a different country a newcomer who has no English skills and needs that support along with three or four other others in that class who may have ESL needs along with learning difficulties and, and so on. Uh, the, a classroom of 35 plus becomes uh, an extremely difficult uh, uh, job to be responsible for looking for that at, at that number of kids, but also to give them a quality education. Our, uh, our educators are in this for the, for the children, but it is through uh, a workplace that is conducive to professionalism that we're going to be able to better service the kids. So it's, it's, it's a full meal deal there. Additional supports for every student so they can have an equitable education is extremely important. I talk about it a lot on this mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. I threw something else into the mix last week, which didn't go over so well with some listeners, but I'm going to do it again. It's not only Carter Churchill who needs additional support or if you're on the spectrum or ADHD or whatever it is. We have to have it in place because if we're having inclusive education, it simply can't mean all the students are in the same building. Right. That also includes some additional support or challenges or opportunities for students with exceptionalities, those who might not be as challenged with the curriculum as some of their classmates. What do we have formally in place to help teachers deal with those students? Because it's also important to have an engaged student. They might be very, very easily to get through the math curriculum or whatever other course load. What do we do to make sure that we max out their, their capabilities and to keep them engaged? Yeah, and you're, you're just, that's right in my wheelhouse there, Patty, because as guidance counselor in a large junior high school, part of my job was to assist with uh, with resourcing of students. And, you know, again, there's so many different exceptionalities that come through a door at the start of a year, whether it's a child with autism, a child with ADHD, a child with Down syndrome. Like, the list is, is endless. Uh, how do I, as a, an individual teacher work with other teachers in the school to properly resource them. So when you think about it, in, in the, the daily running of a school, it's not just a teacher up front. There's reliance on speech-language pathologists. There's reliance on educational psychologists. Um, student assistance, a huge one. Uh, so it's, it's a combination of supports that many of these children are going to need to get through the day. And, um, and I'll use autism as an example. Um, as they say, you look at every every single child with autism is totally different. They're they're a different puzzle, and we got to try and understand that puzzle. Um, we can't presume that what's worked for one child is going to work for another. So, the resourcing piece for us is it's not it's it, numbers is one piece, um, but it's about the composition of your room such that I should be able to pick up the line or go through the guidance counselor and call the speech language pathologist. Their caseloads are through the roof. Educational psychologists, their caseloads are through the roof. We've yet to hire certain educational psychologists in Labrador. So the message we're trying to get out to the public is this, is that resourcing uh, needs right now in our schools are at an all-time high. 
And our population may be down relative to other years, even though it increased briefly there this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, re- the the needs in the schools are so high. And we are now that much smarter in 2022 than we were, say, in 1992, that we now know what these children need in many regards. But the services just aren't there or the resources aren't there. I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else, Trent, before we say goodbye? Patty, I just want to say uh, thanks again for the opportunity to come on and, and discuss these issues because we want the public to understand that uh, the, the reality that they're maybe seeing day in, day out in the schools, uh, you know, your child leaves the house and uh, they come home at the end of the day, how was school great, that the teachers are doing what they can with what they have. And many times, more often than not, it's not sufficient. And it's time for government right now to, to put some practical resources and investment and not just uh, responsive uh, investment into the system. Thanks for this morning, Trent. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Trent Langdon. He's the president of the NLTA. Before we go to the break, let's go to line number three. Michael, you're on the air. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Hello. Hello there. Hi, Vaz. Good morning, sir. What's on your mind? Oh, I'm trying to find out some information regarding to flooding. Or We're living here in Kilbride on, on Chapman Crest, and we have major damage done, I suppose. Uh, water got in between our floors because we're on slab on grade here. Got in between the floorings and went into the laundry room. So uh, one lady, uh, two doors up from me now, all her flooring is uh, popping up. Uh, new flooring that they had put down. And I'm wondering if there's anything of any help available for us. So far as like supports from the, the municipality or something? Yeah, from emergency measures or whatever, like like Igor had, because apparently Kilbride has a bit of damage done their sinkholes up on Old Pity Harbor Road and the place is closed down, whatever. But we have major flooding here. And I, I don't have any insurance on my house because the, the, the company I was with canceled me for having one claim. Um, I was losing my boat and motor. I talked to you a couple of years ago about that with my accident up in Placentia Bay. But in the meantime... I got insurance through another uh, crowd, and they won't cover me other than nothing on a fire. But the situation yeah. right here is, is the problem. There's no uh, ditch, I guess, up between on the easement line, the pole line, for water to run out, and everything that runs from Old Vidy Arbor Road to the bottom of, 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 of Chapman Crescent is all backs up onto us behind us. There's 24 townhouses here in a row. And nothing has been done to uh, to get the overflow of water to get out of here, you know. I do. And and this is the problem every time we have a rainstorm. This is the fourth time that I know about here. The trick in this case, Michael, is that the city, and more importantly the province, has to determine whether or not one weather event or another uh, qualifies to trigger what they call disaster financial assistance. So yeah. at this moment, I don't think there's been any formal classification of this particular remnants of Hurricane Earl to be that. So until the, the either the municipality, and again, most importantly, the province, unless they take that step, then there's probably not any support coming your way from government monies. Holy shit. That's, that's, that's a major problem because you know what's going to happen now. There's going to be mold get in uh, between the floors. Uh, not only me, but the rest of the houses here, as far as that goes, you know. I'm just wondering if there's if there's a number who I could be able to contact at emergency measures or whatever. Well, that's at the Department of Justice and Public Safety, provincially speaking, and I don't really know. Let's let's see here. Let's see if I can get you something that can help you out at least in some fashion. Um, but da da da. 
So this is for an application, but I suppose the same people that you could talk to about applying for it, even though it hasn't been triggered yet, they might be able to give you at least some helpful suggestions, if, if at all possible. So I can give you that number. Please. Okay, so it's, it's a toll-free toll free number. It's 1-888-3-9-5. 3-9-5. Now, that might not be the perfect number, but that's the one that I found very quickly. If that's not going to be of any help to you, you give Fonce a call back. I'll try to find you something else. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for a call from Tom Osborne's office as well on, on this matter. I called at um, uh, Public Safety and Justice and Public Safety, and they, all they could give me was an email address. So that's no good to me at so all. Whatsoever. Was that the NL-DFAP? Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, these these might be the same people, but that's the uh, that's the place where those triggers are met is at the Department of Justice and Public Safety, so they're the right people to talk to. I don't know if they're you're going to make any headway beyond that, but if you don't have any luck, you get back to us. I'll try to find you the next best option. Thank you very much, Fed. Okay, Michael, all the best. Have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, there's going to be some damage. I mean, in my neighborhood, knock on wood, at this moment in time anyway, we haven't suffered any. It was only a few years ago we had the basement flooded out. It is, uh, it's an unbelievable ordeal, no doubt about it. See some pictures of people with some pretty significant flooding. Someone had to be rescued out of their home on Forest Avenue or something this morning. So it's a very real circumstance for a lot of folks. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Jim's in the queue to talk about pensions. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Well, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Hello, good morning, Patty. Morning. I would like to get some information here. Uh, like this uh, low rental housing, you know, for seniors. And uh, they based it on your salary last year. Like last year, I was getting compensation, and uh, I was getting uh, Disability Canada pension. Now, in October, that all ends, so I got a different salary, and I can't get in because they base it upon my salary from last year. Yeah, it's always going to be the case, isn't it? Uh, it's net family income is the way they measure all these things, whatever threshold you're hitting for home heat rebates or housing or any additional supports. It's always been that way. I don't know how they could legitimately change it. Yes, but it uh, doesn't make sense, does it? You know, what I got last year, I don't have this year. Yeah, but I don't know. My only point is I don't know how they change it to look at something that, you know, is is current because what do you do about next month if something else changes for you regarding your, your net family income? So that's it. I don't, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I'm not sure how else you could actually do that and evaluate every case, you know. So if my if my net income was based on employment insurance, for instance, and I apply for something today with a measure of my employment insurance today, but that runs out in October, then what? So that's why they look a year back. Not to say it's good or bad. It's just the way it is. So what kind of support are you looking for, sir? I want to get into uh, uh, the uh, cottages in Stephenville Crossing. They, okay. got, uh, they have eight cottages not being used, but I can't get in there because I'm $2,000 over from last year. This year is different. Yeah, it's a tricky piece of business, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people out there that year to year, they don't have that income they can rely on, whether it be on a steady job or a steady pension, public or private. So I understand the concern. I'm not sure where to direct you to get any 
any help to reevaluate uh, whether or not you can afford something or whether or not you need a subsidy? Uh, is there any way one uh, you can speak to in the Confederation, but it must be somebody ahead over this. Yeah, so is this, uh, are these uh, cottages part of like Newfoundland Labrador Housing, or is it owned privately? Who owns these? No, the government owns it. It's owned by uh, the old age home. It's a base St. George uh, old age place, right? So that's a, that's a provincial long-term care facility. That is, but they have cottages, you see, like they have cottages. Okay, cottages are one building. I'm just wondering who owns it, that's all, so I can f- try to figure out who to talk to. So if you say it's the government, then I know who to talk to, yeah. Yeah, the government owns it. Okay. So, I mean, it's the same evaluation people go under when they try to get a spot in a personal care home or a long-term care facility. And I can certainly try to get someone on to talk about exactly how that works and for reevaluating people's circumstances today versus looking at the year past. Yeah, I can do that. No problem. Okay, thank you very much. Have a nice day, sir. Same to you, Jim. All the best. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, we should schedule that up because there's a lot of conversation about whether or not some of these, like, for instance, the thought that, well, I get a spot in a long-term care facility, they take my money and give me an allowance. Some of that is simply try to measure how much of government support and subsidy an individual gets, But that's something I think we should talk about, and I'll get the right guest on the show to talk about it because it's confusing, and for people who are just on the verge of going down that path, it might be helpful to know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Not too bad, sir. How about yourself? Not too bad. Well, it's been a lot better. Uh, I was listening to your caller there from Petty Harbor, and my heart goes out to him. Uh, We're just down over the hill from those guys in um, uh, Babel's Road. Uh, I just I just pulled into the parking lot here at the hub, uh, just as uh, your call came in, and uh, I left the house this morning at 9:15. It's now 10:34. That's how long it took me to get here, uh, because basically our street now is a river, uh, and it, it's incredible, Patty. It's really for two years we've been going through to to hell with this construction project where they're putting in the sewer in our street. And for the life of me, I can't understand how the engineers at the city are not aware that a river runs right beside Babel's Road. Now, they've, they've dug it up three different times, three separate times they fully dug up our road. Uh, and it's still... If I could send you a picture of it, you wouldn't believe it. I was tempted to go out there this morning with my fire rod and see if I could catch a few trout. That's how much water is there. Uh, and, and, you know, nobody seems to be able to address this issue. I know this was a, a lot of water that fell over the weekend. But, man, oh, man, I got my neighbor next to me, uh, a lady whose husband is in the hospital. Uh, she's got several flat tires because of the condition of the road. Uh, I met my my elderly neighbor this morning. He's waiting for his turkeys to be delivered, and he can't get down the road because the road is closed. And 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 again, the, the city seems to be turning a blind eye to it. Nothing unlike the situation with the gentleman from Petty up on Old Petty Harbor Road. It's, a, it's simply amazing, Patty. Amazing. I've seen the pictures as recently as this morning, so it's pretty remarkable stuff. And again, you and I have had this conversation in the past. You know, some of the concerns people, just in broad stroke, people have concerns with things like regionalization because they don't want to pay for something they don't get. 
the difference between some of the services I get and the things that go on in Kilbride and the things that have happened in the ghouls are completely different. And But we're all paying very similarly. And even some of the bills that people have found in their mailbox in Kilbride from additional infrastructure to be put in, paying out of pocket. So it's not a level playing field out there. That much I'll, uh, I understand and agree 100%. Yeah, I know. And the, the crazy thing about this is that, you know, here we are living in a capital city. Uh, and we've been after this for years and years and years and years and years to get sewer and water. And finally, when the federal government said to the uh, said to the city, no longer you're going to be able to send the the sewage from uh, the ghouls out into Shoal Harbor. It's got to come to the treatment plant. So, which means they got to come to our area. So that's the reason why we're getting the sewer. And at the same time, they're not putting in a water line. Even the construction company uh, shaking their heads, well, but saying, well, in a few years, we'll get another job to dig this up again to put in water. So I can't understand, again, how, how rational men and women can sit around a council table and say, well, we're going to spend $40 million to replace the news center. Uh, and nobody raises their hand and says, well, what about the people in the Kilbride and the Ghouls that haven't got water and sewer? You know, this, this is the part that amazes me the most. But, uh, and again, to get back into the original part of my conversation, why the city engineers are not aware of the issues up, like up on Old Petty Harbor Road and on our streets and, and are not addressing them. You know, so uh, I'm sorry to use you as a sounding board this morning. But okay. It, it started when I had to go pick up my wife at the Janeway this morning. She got off work at 7.30. And I practically had to drive to the Trans-Canada, which I did, to get around everything, to get get to her. My, I can't get my young fellow to school this morning because the road is closed, so I can't get him down to the bus. All all of it preventable. And, and, and again, I'm using you as a sounding board, and I, and I apologize for that, but it's just my way of venting, and I thank you for it. I appreciate the time well, this morning, Tom. Stay in touch. We'll put some of these questions to the city. Perfect. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Tom. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, pause in the queue, talk a little GST. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Paul, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Oh, yeah. I got talking to you last week about, about hockey. I think that's fair to call you this morning. Patty, I heard something on the television last week. I don't know if your listeners picked up on it or your newsroom. Uh, last Thursday, Patty, I was watching CBC uh, News on television. Uh, David Cochran was on from Vancouver. Apparently at the time, the prime minister was there with some of his cabinet members and the leader of the NDP, uh, Singh, is it? That's right, Jugmeet Singh. And apparently they were going to hold some kind of a, a conference, a news conference, uh, to talk about... Uh, the dental plan program for children under 12, mm-hmm. and uh, Peter Cochran also said they're going to be doubling up on the GST payments <coughs> credits for for six months for people on, uh, who are in receipt of the GST. Now that was David Cochran. That was last Thursday, but they had to cancel it because, of course, you know what happened. The Queen passed away, so they said it was going to be announced at a later date. Mm-hmm. But I guess David Cochran, being David Cochran, I guess he got inside information. But uh, that would be good news to hear for sure. I mean, it's nice to see the government is actually picking up the tempo a bit. And if they're going to finally do something with people who need the dental plan for sure, 
and uh, doubling up on a GST for six months, that would be that would come in handy, Patty, for a lot of people who who are struggling through the inflation right now. Yeah, I mean, I know why the announcement was preempted. I get it. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I don't think it's going away. I don't think the Queen's passing derails it in full. I guess it's all about whether or not it's quote-unquote appropriate timing. Because remember, the reason that this government is going to be able to continue on is because of the supply agreement they have with the NDP. And this is important to the NDP. If this doesn't happen, then they will not support the government. I think that's quite clearly uh, uh, understood and stated by, in particular, Mr. Singh. So the delay is unfortunate, but I was, I'm just guessing it's going to still happen based on the relationship that they've very publicly struck. I think a lot of people are, are, are waiting to see what, what comes from that uh, news conference, when it does happen, like you say. But I just thought I'd call in this morning. I'm sure some of your listeners probably caught the tail end of that, you know. But uh, I'm not so much interested in the dental myself, but certainly getting the double on the GST, Patty, that would certainly help. Yeah, there was a, <laughs> there was a lot to uh, some of these additional supports they were putting out. It's also curious when, you know, it's easy to uh, go after government about spending, and that's absolutely fair commentary. We've got to talk about spending. Why wouldn't we talk about spending? But for the folks who are struggling and falling through the cracks, and more and more of them are, then it's in our collective best interest to see that what we could do for them. I haven't had a government support check. I don't think I've ever had one, to be honest with you. But I see the merit in some of these things, like a, a brief doubling of GST, supports for daycare, the path to 10 bucks. I think all these things make sense. They don't do anything for me, but I understand how they're important to individuals and to the society and to the economy. So uh, we'll find out as soon as we can exactly where they're going to pick up the slack and make these formal announcements. But I'd be shocked if they don't continue with those pledges because that's what's keeping the government alive. Yeah, I mean, even if it's doubling the GST for six months, that's a help is better than no help, Patty. Yeah, I agree 100%. Okay. I was going to ask you one question before I go. Sure. This uh, uh, here in Newfoundland uh, where we only dial seven numbers, that's being changed to ten numbers? You know when that's coming into effect? It is. It's going to be by November 2023 off the top of my head. And that's all, of course, to accommodate... The CRTC has said there will indeed be a three-digit mental health crisis line, 988, and because of that, we're going to have to all dial 709 in front of the local numbers. Okay, and geez, what was I going to ask you? Oh, my God, I'm after forgetting. Uh, yeah, because that, that that's already in place in the rest of Canada, isn't it, Patty? Aren't we late in getting that in Newfoundland? Not everywhere. Uh, like, for instance, if I'm in Alberta, I have to do it because I can either phone... Uh, 780 or, 40, four, or pardon, uh, 403. So in some parts, we do, they do indeed have 10 digit dialing. But if I live in a community that is a 905, then I'm pretty sure I simply have to dial the 7. But there are parts of the country where you do dial 10 numbers. Yeah. Wow. Because they're going to get used to, I guess. Yeah, but like, I mean, for most of us, yeah. we've got uh, telephone numbers in our address book on our phone. And every phone number I have in here includes the 709 because if I wanted to, say, for instance, send a text message, I need it in there anyway. So I think we'll all make that adjustment pretty quick. It'll seem like a pain in the neck the first few times where you forget to do it, and then you hear the old automated voice, your call cannot be connected. But before long, we'll just it'll be just a matter of habit, and bang, 709 in it goes, and away we go. Change is good. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, on this, in this case, I think this makes every bit of sense in the world. And we've been talking about it for years. If, you know, as opposed to scrambling to try to find a specific phone number, if you find yourself in a mental health crisis, to know that, like when you're children, you're told very clearly, you find yourself in an emergency, it's three numbers. It's 911. We will have Canadians coast to coast to coast understand that all I have to do is call 988. 
Now, of course, there's much more complicated than that, but I think that's a really positive move for the country to make and wise on the regulator to do so. I'm happy to plug in 709 if it makes it easier for folks to get help. So you say around the 22nd, 23rd of November? No, I, I think it's uh, November next year is when it comes oh to passing full. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. Well, anyway, thanks for your time, Eddie. Anytime. Bye, all, buddy. all the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, that makes sense to me, right? You know, again, as soon as you're old enough to understand where to turn if you need some help or you find yourself in an emergency, children know, 911. So now, if that becomes the same case, and it'll happen very quickly, I think, where people will just have it built into their mind. If I have a mental health crisis, it's 988, and away we go. A quick one on 911. We were, I mentioned Toronto Pearson earlier. We were there one time, I can't remember where we were going, but uh, my oldest was only a little tyke. And him and one of his buddies were over at a payphone calling 911. Next thing I know, here comes the RCMP. And he didn't know he was doing anything wrong. He was uh, three years old or something. But uh, that one jumps into my head all the time. Uh, okay, let's take a break. Sarah's in the queue. She actually wants to talk about the mental health number. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Listen, I just heard something about you men- mentioned, one of your other callers mentioned there, about that there's going to be a three-digit number now for the mental health crisis line. That's right. And when will that be in effect? By the fall of next year. That's the mandate coming from the uh, CRTC. That's, of course, the regulator for telecom business here in the country. So there's been a long-running campaign to install a three-number, a three-digit number for mental health crisis. And in this case, it's uh, the campaign was called uh, Campaign 988, and it's coming. Okay, excellent, because, you know, as somebody who does suffer a lot with mental health issues, I find, you know, it would be great to have just a three-digit number put in place because, you know, when anybody's in a crisis, they don't want to be dialing a seven-digit number or they don't want to be dialing or be, be put on hold, you know, just to have that three-digit number there, you know, I think would be, you know, fantastic, would be a fantastic initiative. Yeah, I think and so, too. Like, the provincial government, they have some supports not have flowed over to 811, but for a national standard, this makes sense. Like, if you want to call Talk Suicide Canada, you need to remember the number one eight three three four five six four five six six as opposed to 988. And that's a hor- and that's horrible. That's a hor- that's a horribly long no- number for anybody who's going through any kind of crisis at all. They don't want to be dialing such a they don't want to be dialing such a long number. And so I think I think now with this now is this going to be a local number? Like would you be talking to somebody here in the province locally, or would that be just a number for across Canada? It'll be a national number. Who you get transferred to upon dialing? I'm not really sure to be honest with you. I assume, just like, I mean, we have a mental health crisis line here in the province run by the uh, provincial government. We have Channel's Warm Line, which is extremely helpful. I put people on to Jacob Potter and to Wellness Together. But I think when it's a crisis issue, as opposed to looking for ongoing supports and counseling and access to uh, continuity of care, those are different chats. When it's a crisis, this just makes sense. Now, someone pointed out, and fair enough, that it might not be great for every single person in the community because... She says, for instance, her mother has dementia, and she still right. loves getting calls from her, and she remembers the house phone number. Will she remember to dial 709? That's a fair concern. But I think in the big scheme of things, this is going to be of a benefit, a net benefit to the country. So, And we know the numbers. It's one in five, and that, that doesn't mean one in five or have suicidal ideations, but 
If Canadians do, we need them to get some immediate crisis support. Well, that's true, too, right? I think, too, you know, given the fact that we never had a dollar seven oh nine in front of our numbers, like somebody in the case of uh, that that lady having dementia, it might it might take her a little bit to get used to, or it may not, and she may not be able to get used to it at all. Um, so, so you know that three-digit number then for the uh, for the National Crisis uh, Crisis Center, you know, would just be you know fantastic. Three numbers, and then you're connected connected to somebody, and that's it. So, you know, I think that I think that's really fantastic. I really think you know here here you know too like. They are, they are doing a lot better when it comes to dialing 811 now to talk to somebody if you're having mental health health issues. And I don't know, because I, I don't know if the other, the old number, the old crisis line number is still activated anymore. Uh, because now if I had a call for any reason, I just called 811. Um, so I don't know if that's still activated as a as a right now, I think it was seven two nine seven eight eight eight. I think that was an old crisis line number. So I'm not like I said, I'm not sure if that's still activated because I think they switched that all over now to eight one one. But I guess now when you call that three digit number when it comes into effect next year, they may be able to get you connected to somebody who is here or maybe even locally in the province. I think it gets transferred right into eight one one if I'm not mistaken. Uh, if you okay. dial that number, I, th- I think it still exists. You won't get just a dial tone or a busy signal or, you know, the old automated voice or call can't be connected. But all those services are now through 811. And, of course, I mentioned Channel's Warm Line and the Mental Health Crisis Line. Also, Kids Help Phone has done terrific work, and their numbers of uh, children across the province and across the country reaching out to them has grown which is kind of scary to know just how big it's grown. But oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I do think this 988 is, is going to be of help. And I think and it's, it makes all sense. And there's also doorways here too in the province. Um, doorways is a drop-in Absolutely. center for people with mental health and, and addictions. They're over there in Pleasantville, um, and I've used uh, and I've. Um, and I've counted on them several times, and they're absolutely wonderful over there as well. So we have many resources here in the province, and it's and in St. John's in particular, um, for anybody who is in any kind of crisis or any kind of like mental health crisis. So you know, to have that, to have that number now, I think across Canada, I think that'd be fan- like I said, I think that'd be fantastic. It's a step in the right direction. It's really, you know, when you think about it out loud, it's kind of what's the right word. It, concerning or troubling or curious or interesting or something or other that yeah. we have this level and I think it's good to talk about and we really try to be open and honest to talk about mental health issues on this program yeah. so it's probably a very very good thing but to know the numbers and even maybe how they've grown over the course of the pandemic and maybe right. just more realization that people are realizing that I can go try to get help I don't have to be embarrassed to talk about it there is someone there who's going to help me out which I think is the important positive side of the story but there's just so many people struggling and I hear it every day and there's so many people struggling all the time with their mental health and I find I find too that I find too you know there is still there is still a lot of stigma around mental health and I guess that's and I guess that's why two people are so afraid to reach out and say, you know, I need help. Can somebody, can you please provide me the help that I need or, you know, try to help me find somebody who can provide me the help um, you know, that uh, that I need. You know, I see my, me myself, I see a psychiatrist every every six weeks and I six weeks and I 
I'm on medication. I'm on medication, and I'm I have no problem telling anybody. Yes, I see a psychiatrist, and yes, that I have to take medication. I have to take medication, and if I didn't have that medication, I wouldn't be able to get up. I wouldn't be able to get up and out of bed every day. Um, so you know, to have that, you know, to have that help, and to have, you know, for people try to get over that little bump and say, yes, I have to go get help, can still be really struggling. It was, you know, can be a big struggle to people. And I just find that it's just, I just find that the three-digit number now next, that it comes into effect next year, it's going to be fantastic. And so I was just curious about it when the other caller was talking about it. I was just curious about it, you know, piqued my interest. And I was piqued my interest, and I said, you know, and he says a little bit about other, like, I guess maybe a good step in the right direction when it comes to people with their mental health. And I think so, health. too. I think it's a good decision, Sarah, and I'm really pleased that you called the show this morning. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you, Patty. Hope you're doing well. Also, you take care and have a good day. Same to you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, positive move. And it will take some adjusting, too, to dial 709. You know, it's not that long ago, people only had to dial four numbers. Like my parents, my mother has the same uh, four last four digits as when my father first moved to St. John's. I'm not going to give out a phone number, but yeah, it was. We just had the four numbers, and then of course there was. I think the first introduction might have been seven two six here in the city, anyway. And then of course there was the seven two twos and the five seven nines and the three six eights and the eight nine fives, and now we are where we are. Yes, uh, five. I got a trunk that is uh, got an address on it for Torbay, and it has two numbers as the telephone number. Yeah, there you go. So uh, things have changed uh, certainly over the years, but now the. Additional requirement to dial 10 numbers instead of 7 is going to be coming as of the fall of next year. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we still have plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in The Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Hello. How are you? Doing okay. How about you this morning, sir? Oh, not too bad, I suppose. Um, I sent you an email last night or this morning. And, uh, well, aside from that, I have uh, more developments on the same topic. Don't want to really get into the email topic right now. Okay. But, um, uh well, you know, I'll just say for the audience or anyone listening, my my wife is housebound with all kinds of health trouble, and she wears Depends. And uh, the thing of it is, she really needs them. And we we have, uh, well, I say, try to say, we have very low income. We, I suppose you could call it. We almost have to cut the cent in half to make make ends meet the way it is. Now, uh, her underwear is delivery is due approximately once a month give or take a day one way or the other, which has been the case for quite some time, no problems. Um, uh, last month, middle of the month, our underwear delivery was due August 13th. Didn't show up, it showed up a week late, which is hard on us because we had to go out and buy approximately $40 worth of underwear. That don't sound like much to most people, the hell of a lot to us, we don't have much. So, uh, I tried to avoid that late delivery, so I called him Friday, left a message, got no response, called again today, saying the underwear was due tomorrow. That's that's one month. That's the delivery tomorrow. Now, granted, day or two late, understandable. Two or three days late, understandable. 
So I called, person out there told me. Uh, I said, when will it be delivered? She said, in about two weeks. And I said, what her underwear is doing now? What she said, and what she told me, she said, we're backed up here. Now, from what I understand, this place who delivers all the underwear is all centralized in a warehouse in Carboneer. And uh, so if they don't deliver that underwear for two weeks when it's due, uh, it's due tomorrow, you know, technically, like I said, a couple days late, that won't matter. And she said, she said it's not being delivered, well, just to say the end of the month, right? Which is due the middle of the month. And she said they're backed up. I'm sorry I'm being long-winded. I'm anxious. And I'm it's okay. Take your time. Best. You're doing okay. Oh, okay. Um, so um, so if, if this is the case for us, having, having a, now, if they don't deliver that for a month, like I said, I don't know if I said this already, we got to come up somehow with about $100 to buy underwear, which we absolutely don't have. And if this is happening to us, it's happening to potentially dozens or even hundreds of other people. And, uh, I mean, if, uh, if there's a lot more people going through this, I mean, if you're getting those depends, you've definitely got no money because you need them because it's all based on income. So if this is happening to us. It's happened to a hell of a lot more people. And uh, what I'm trying to say is, uh, you know, I'd like to know what's going on out there, right? If it was just uh, that particular warehouse or, or if it's the government, if it's department, or department overall, whatever, right? But somebody needs to look into this, right? Like I say, two weeks late for, uh, for a delivery that's needed, absolutely needed uh, now. And uh, anyway, so like I said, as far as I understand, it's all a centralized uh, warehouse and carbon here. And... Uh, you know, if I had any transportation or a friend to take me out, I go out there and try to pick it up myself. But of course, I got nothing like that. We got no power. We got nothing. And I have to spend almost 24/7 with my wife to look after her. Anyway, uh, I've said the best I can. So that's that's pretty much it, eh? I understand your concern, David. Uh, just so I'm clear, this is a support that comes from the government. The government sends these through some sort of distributor, or who actually sends yes, the underwear? It, it, it's it's called the program is called Community Supports Program. Okay. And it's based on need, based on income. And uh, if if you have a, a family member or whatever living at home and they need uh, things like that, disposable underwear and, uh, you know, perhaps there's other things, but I'm not aware of them. But anyway, disposable underwear and things like that, uh, they're delivered, uh, you know, as needed. Uh, so it comes from a program, uh, you know, department, run by the Department of Health, provincial Department of Health, as far as I know. And it's called a community supports program. So, okay, uh, I, I'm I'm familiar with that. I just wasn't quite sure what we were talking about, who the group was. So, okay. just very quickly, I saw something come in out of the corner of my eye, uh, and it was about your call. Okay, I've got something for you, David. So, is it okay if I share your telephone number with a listener who sent me a note and says they'd like to help you out? Oh, my gosh, certainly, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Oh, that's a sign. So uh, okay. we, we have it. I'll reply to this very kind lady and her email, and uh, you she'll give you a shout, and you guys figure it out. And let me know how it goes, okay? Oh, sure. But like I said, uh, I'd like to res a response from whoever's running this or some government department. I mean, 
two weeks overdue was very significant for something that's needed on time, right? I understand 100%. You know? So I will, what I can do is just for others out there who might be experiencing the same delays, which will have a major impact in your home, and I would suggest, like you mentioned, many other people's homes. So that program is run out of the Department of Health and Community Services. I have contact yes. information for them. Uh, I will see if they can explain to me what the snag is, if there's something with a backlog of delivery or distribution trucks or something. I'll figure out that side, but I'm going to respond to this lady with your phone number so that we can get you some immediate help, and I'll try to find out for the larger audi- audience exactly what's happening. Oh, okay. Well, 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 thank you. Thank you for your time. No problem. Uh, a couple of other things that might be of assistance. Are you in the city, sir? Oh, St. John's, yes. Okay, you're in St. John's. Also, so a couple of quick things. I'll give this lady your number. You can also try to contact the folks at the hub, uh, and they'll be able to help you out. Also, the gathering place might be able to help you out, but we have some immediate help for you already. I'll reply with your number. You should be getting a call from this lady very, very quickly. Oh, okay. Well, well, thank you, and thank anyone can help. Thank you. No problem. Good luck, sir. And let me know how you make out, will you? Oh, I will. Yes, I will. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. You take good care of yourself. Oh, you too. Thank you. All Bye-bye. Oops, i got to click that right button. Fonce, the number I have on on the screen, is that, can you just, can you say it in my ear so I make sure I got it properly? I don't want to give out his number to everyone listening to the program. So, okay, I got the right one. Uh, So we really appreciate that very kind lady. It was a friend of mine who sent me that email. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, I guess we're going to talk about some of the damage that we're seeing out there today. There's damages to breakwaters in a couple of different communities. The extensive flooding. We heard from Tom earlier about what's happening in Kilbride and David from Kilbride as well. But the member of the House of Assembly, Loyola Loyola O'Driscoll, is joining us right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Grand today. Thank you. How are you? Good. Uh, Just wondering, I'm coming in loud and clear as I am on a speakerphone in the car or Bluetooth. Yeah, you sound okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, Patty just called in to give an update on the uh, issue in Trapassi and the breakwater given way on uh, Saturday night. Uh, I had a call about 11.30 just to say that the road was washed out and, you know, there's no no entrance or no way to get over to the lower coast in Trapassi. So I went up yesterday morning and uh, just had a site visit with the maintenance uh, person there and met with the mayor and uh, in the fire hall and some councillors and uh, there's a big devastation that went on down on the lower coast for sure. All the breakwater is gone and there's some two to three feet of rock that are washed in over the breakwater and onto the, I wouldn't call it a road now, the road is gone. So, you know, there, today I'm just speaking to the mayor for a lift. Uh, I'm driving up there now and uh, they are trying to make an emergency to get over so we can get access for anybody on the lower coast to be able, if there's any emergencies come up or any appointments that got to be made to make access for them to be able to get across and, and get over to, you know, to appointments if, if so be. I have the pictures here. A, a listener sent along uh, some, like I've got about a dozen. It's unbelievable. So people are completely cut off. If you're on the lower coast, you are cut off from the rest of Trapassi. How bad is the breakwater? I'm trying to look at the pictures as we speak, but it looks like major sections are gone. Major sections are gone. We were up there about 
probably four or five months ago, I was up there with the MP, Ken McDowell, and we're up there in the town, requested we go up and have a look. And there was a pile of beach rock there, and we thought that at the time, you know, you'd need a loader or an excavator or, or a dozer to push it all back away from the breakwater to make it better. Well, that beach up there now is just like a beach in Florida. There's not a beach rock left on it. It's wow. unbelievable. It's came in over the breakwater and, and went across the road. And there's places, uh, two or three feet, certainly easy to say two or three feet. Plus the water line is underneath that road as well. So, you know, when they're doing construction, you got to be careful for people on the lower coast as well. So, you know, just going up there this morning and see where they're to with it and just to, uh, you know, have another look and see if there's anybody we need to call or try to get there, you know, to help out in some way. Was there ever thought uh, in the past that the breakwater wasn't up to what we might see for storm surges? Because I've been in Trapassi, I never really noticed that it wasn't going to be potentially adequate. No, and, you know, when you drive down there, you're driving past and have not really noticed it. But, you know, the town over the years has certainly been, you know, trying to get some funding for it. And, you know, if everything stays okay, you know, they don't put any attention to it. You know, they don't do any work with it. But, you know, when it comes to a point like this, I mean, they had a tender that's, supposed to be done or started sometime this week they were sort of trying to sign off on it but that whole scope of work has to change now and uh, you know it's certainly a, a major upgrade is needed there to prevent this again right so uh, you know it's a big scope of work that got to happen for sure we were talking earlier with a fellow who's got uh, some flooding and he's out in Kilbride and if you you know at some point and I know this is not province-wide, and it's not Igor-type damage as far as we can tell today, but whether it be residential or trapassi with what you're facing there, I mean, that's got to be replaced as soon as it's possible because who knows when the next storm surge is. We know why breakwaters are in place. Do you have any understanding of the protocols, Loyola, for what it takes for the province or a municipality to consider disaster financial assistance? No, I'm not really sure on that, uh, you know, how that works or if they declare a state of emergency, can you declare it for, you know, a certain portion of a town or is it the town in general? So, uh, you know, I'm not really sure of the protocols and how all that works. But I know that Trapassi had, you know, they got a social center, they got emergency uh, stuff set up, uh, they got, a, you know, cots and everything available if stuff was there. So they were, you know, they were pretty well ready. You know, every town has a, sort of a town plan that they're trying to do in case of these emergencies. So, you know, I'd have I have to say, when I visited town yesterday and spoke to the mayor and the councillors, you know, they, they were they were in pretty good order, i got to say, you know. But still, they, you couldn't prepare for this. There's no way to prepare for it. I mean, with Igor coming through before, I mean, this was way more devastating than anything you ever see in the area. So you just don't know what storm surges and a lot of people not realizing what they're going to cause and what effect they're going to have, right? Well, I remember the last go-around, uh, there was some massive storm surge damage underground out of Conception Bay South. I'm going to follow up and see what happened there, whether or not it was incumbent on the municipality on their own to deal with the repairs or whether or not there was a trigger of this uh, disaster financial assistance. That just popped in my mind with some storm surge damage. But we learned a lot of tough lessons with Igor, whether it be uh, things like the breakwaters and or the size of culverts. And hopefully those lessons learned have been applied but uh, and that's, I'm not saying that's specifically the case or a shortcoming out of capacity because I'll be honest with you, I heard the forecast and I knew kind of what was coming. I was caught off guard. That was way more vicious weather than I was expecting this past weekend. My house on Saturday morning looked like it was a green and white leopard. Just leaves everywhere stuck to the house. Branches filled out in the yard, flooding in around my neighborhood. Hopefully, thankfully, knock on wood, not in my home. And hopefully none of my friends and family's home or anybody's home for that matter. But we've got to apply these lessons. Emergency management stuff is not just after the fact. It's got to be preparation up front as well. 
Yeah, yeah, there's no question. And, you know, I, I, like I said, this is a municipal road as well, too, Betty. Like, it's a town-owned road. And, you know, with the residents, only 300 people there, they can't afford. How can that town afford to be able to put the infrastructure back there? And sort of between provincial and federal governments, you know, one is uh, federally with the uh, wharves and breakwaters and stuff. So, you know, that's where it gets a bit slowed down in the process. So, you know, we need this to be able to get back. As you said, something could happen pretty quick that another storm could come on us in a week and, you know, probably worse again down there, you know. So you got to get it fixed to the proper detail, I'm going to say, so we can prevent this from happening again, right? Uh, not to change the topic, because I know this is an important one, especially for the people in that area on the lower coast, because, I, like I say, the pictures are really quite something. Um, I don't know if it was me and you or whether or not it was uh, locals or the mayor talking about the ambulance service. Has there been any change out in Trapassi? Because it's one of several communities that have seen a distinct change in their ambulance service because a round trip in and out of Trapassi is a long one. Any change on that front? Penny, it hasn't changed for sure, but certainly still a big issue. You know, we've uh, I dealt with a call uh, last week uh, where a lady waited for an ambulance for three hours and 45 minutes. The dispatch didn't get a dispatch to the Trapassi ambulance. They had to send an ambulance for St. John's. I spoke with the minister regarding this issue, uh, the current minister, and uh, you know he, you know, we had a good discussion on it. And again, the issue that we got is, you know, they take this ambulance out of Trapassi and move it to Cape Royal, and and they didn't even dispatch the ambulance from Cape Royal. Or maybe it was gone. I don't know. I mean, that's what we're checking into that. But you know, it's a major, major issue, and it's not about the cost for this. This is about the distance from town again, and it's not based on the number of calls. It's based on... When I was there yesterday, I'll give you an example. I was there yesterday walking out to the breakwater. The ambulance was leaving Trapassi. So what happens to somebody on the other side of that breakwater, the other side of that the area that's flooded out, and they can't get over? So, you know, that ambulance was leaving Trapassi when I was there yesterday at about uh, 9 o'clock. And that ambulance will be out of the system then for at least 5 to 6 hours. That's at a minimum 5 to 6 hours. So, you know, going from that... That's when an emergency, this when this stuff happens. Well, hopefully it never happens, but, you know, the government got to look at putting that ambulance back there, the second ambulance back in that area to be able to, uh, you know, take care of the constituents in that in that district, in that area in Trapassi. You know, it's it's incredible that it's gone, and you make as many calls as you like. You just, you just missed the point, I think, on, you know, what the whole issue is up there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty big one, and we know that, like even some of the most uh, recent recommendations about amalgamating air and uh, ground ambulance services into the one entity. Okay, that's operational stuff. That's not about ensuring that there's a do away with the disparity between the rate of pay, the hours worked, on call and otherwise, between private and public. It's become an issue. Well, not become an issue. It's been an issue for quite a long time, and we've seen paramedics leave. We can't afford that, and they're all waiting for the next big master plan, which was supposed to be delivered within months, and this is years later. We still don't really know what the future holds. Yeah, there's no question. I spoke with a paramedic the weekend, and, uh, you know, he said the same thing. It's 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 a system that can be certainly revamped, and they got to get the right people to speak about it, not just make up their own, you know, they got to get the people that are involved, the paramedics that are there that you know they can help and dispatch, and there's all kinds of issues, obviously. But, I mean, they really got to get their work done on this. And, I mean, I'm sitting here in Cape Royal now, and, uh, you know, I had calls from Cape Royal that uh, I'm going to say a couple of months ago that, there's a person had a stroke. He's looking at one ambulance gone to St. John's. Two ambulances sitting in Cape Royal, right out to his window, and they can't get anyone to drive those vehicles or they, there's not service there. So why leave them there if they haven't got people to man them? 
you know, so that's that. That's some of the issues that are going on that, you know, that we're dealing with in the district, and it's uh, pretty frustrating, i got to say. I appreciate the time this morning, Loyola. I'm going to try to figure out what it takes to trigger some financial assistance for municipalities and individuals here because the damage in this region is fairly significant today, and I've seen pictures that are pretty self-explanatory about just how much damage there is. Maybe we'll just try to have a general conversation with the minister responsible about how that looks and works because, like, we spoke to an atmospheric scientist one day, maybe last week, week before. We've had a quiet hurricane season up until now. It was the first time in, I think, since 1962 that there hadn't been a named storm uh, by the end of August. But here we go, the remnants of Hurricane Earl. We know there's another couple swirling around that may indeed form into a hurricane and sustained winds required. And who knows what that means for this province. So those are the two conversations we're going to line up for the program. But I appreciate making time this morning. And thank you, Patty. I do appreciate your time. It's certainly great that you can be able to uh, speak to it and let the people know and the residents in the area what, what's happening, really. So, Absolutely. Well, thank you again. My pleasure. All, All the right, best. Thanks, okay, bye-bye. It's Loyola O'Driscoll. He's the PC member for Fairland. You know, the lesson learned stuff, if, you know, the size of the culverts was a clear example. And we had to make the obvious adjustments to expand the size of the culverts in so many areas. If we had to do any replacement, we had to do it right. Same thing, I guess, when it comes to breakwaters. When they are damaged and or obliterated, it looks like the one at Chapassi is in terrible shape. As opposed to repair where they are, you know, to do a cost-benefit analysis of what the repair looks like, how effective it would be, and or when space is available, to adjust based on rising sea level and intensity. So if that means, as opposed to replace for 80% of the cost where it currently stands versus 100% of the cost to put it somewhere that might be a little bit more robust and to stand up to what we see regarding frequency, severity of some of these storms and or rising sea levels, then maybe that's a consideration that also has to be applied. Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you, and it doesn't matter what the topic is. It's completely up to you, so pick up the phone and give us a shout. We'll speak with you right after the news. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go line number one. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. It's long while talking to you. Long time. Welcome back. Yes. Listen, uh, between the supermarkets and the food bank, now, I don't understand this. You probably understand more than I do. Or even people who run these supermarkets. Uh, when he delivers a lot of food, different kinds of food down this province, bring to the supermarkets, right? Okay, whatever he has on the shelf that he can't sell, say, could almost outdated. You know, it uh, makes me wonder why we, we get short food, food, food in the food banks. I wonder do half of that stuff go in, goes in the landfill or what they do with, like, say, sometimes you go in these stores. They never have no specials on there for people with low-income people who are senior citizens, and that. So I wonder what to do with, with the them food that sounds outdated. Depends on the store. Now, there are some places where they've got a relationship with food banks, but it should be formalized. It should be every big retailer, whether it be the Walmarts, the Costco, Sobeys, Dominion, Coleman's, whatever, as opposed to one iota of food making its way to Robin Hood Bay. If it's still good and fresh, or well, if it's still fit to eat, we'll call it, it should make its way to a food bank. 
or the gathering place or wherever. Now, I know some of that does happen. There are some provinces that have built-in formalized relationships between the big food retailers and uh, entities like food banks so that nothing gets wasted. Because if you look at the numbers, food wastage in Canada is unbelievable, residential and industrial. Yeah, hopefully, you no. Know, they say, well, we already bring so much food, then this this problem's ours. And here, uh, like, they're throwing half that way, probably. And the, say, it's a shame what they're doing. Like, the, say, they're making enough money now off people in this province. That our populations are, I don't get so much income coming in the household. Yeah, but what's your point about bringing in the food? Because they bring in what they think they can sell. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Because I, I think, like, when the, when the old load stack in the, in the stores, it seems it's impossible to sell everything in the supermarket anyway. You, you remember, say, how many times you, you go to the supermarket and say, oh, geez, I'm not buying that. That's too expensive. Say, you'll probably come back another month's time. That's how I'm supposed to eat it. You look at the price of like fruit and that. They've been dating for a bad and everything. Who's going to eat, like, bad old tomatoes in the stores? They're dated. It, it's no going to the food bank. It's not fit to eat. Well, the issue regarding produce is a tricky one to begin with because... Sometimes you strike some decent-looking produce in the store. Sometimes not so much. No, I wish the government could do kick in and do something about this because there's a lot of people in this problems need need some need some food in the fridge or the freezer because I'm telling you, you can't you can't go in hundred dollar bill today and and spend them with a lot of groceries in the bag. Yeah, I I think you're right. Like sometimes I have no earthly idea how people are making ends meet, especially when it comes to being able to buy food, and we saw the numbers come out a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, about just how many families are food insecure in this province. The national average is one in five, and this province is one in four. And then when you bring that back down to the numbers of children, uh, actually those were numbers regarding children, one in five nationally, one in four in this province, some 22,000 children live in a food insecure household. So it's a big one. Jim, here's some numbers for you to consider, and this is really quite something. And I just had to look for it. In 2022, the National Zero Waste Council, and that's here in Canada, conducted research on household food waste. So we're not even talking about the grocery stores. Household food waste. The results were astonishing. 63% of the food Canadians throw away could have been eaten. For the average Canadian household, that amounts to 140 kilograms of wasted food per year. And it costs more than $1,300 per year. Now, I try to be very mindful in my home. Leftovers, I'll gobble up every bit of leftover I can ever get my hands on. But we do the same thing sometimes. We look in the back of the fridge and find something that is way out of date, ends up going in the garbage, and who knows how much that costs. Then is the conversation about what's a best before date versus an expiry date. So taking a look at how we deal with food, whether it be in my home or at the grocery store, something we have to be much more mindful of. Could just get a load of that. 140 kilograms of wasted food per year, about 1,300 bucks. That's unbelievable numbers. Yeah, that, that's a lot of money. It's a huge. lot of money though to waste down the drain. You know, throw it, throw waste stuff like that because you know, like uh, like I said, people don't get a low income. Like uh, even so, it, it, even so, with the government, uh, people on social assistance or low income people. You think they gave a few extra bucks on their checks to the same to abuse the system, but you think they they'll give a few bucks on their checks there, a few money on the checks extra to buy stuff and put in their pockets. It seems the government's not doing nothing in these budgets for for the people that really needs it. Well, I think they expanded uh, some of the programs. For folks on income support, a 10% bump, and uh, those on the seniors' benefit, a 10% bump. Now, that's not huge monies. It's a step in the right direction. We know the struggles. They are mighty, and they are real. 
and everybody who listens to this program knows that I hear an awful lot of them, and yeah, we try to. They're not doing very much with social services. I'm saying, okay. the people up there is really staring, going to the food bank. You say it's only once a month. You know, we're gonna do rest in, it, rest in two weeks if you have no extra money coming in your pockets. Go to the store and buy something extra. I understand. All right, thanks, Patty. No problem, Jim. Take Bye. care. All right, bye bye. Uh, Tony, one of our. Our buddies, uh, truck driving Tony Power, he uh, just tweeted, he said, years ago he worked with a transport company that dumped damaged products. They would not donate any because of the liability, i.e. a dented can. So some of those things are real, and we have to be careful. It's, you know, the food banks should not be a repository for stuff we're trying to get rid of. It's all in an effort to help. But that whole conversation, and I think there was three layers to it. It was labeling. Some of that came with sugary tax drink stuff. And it was the amount of food being wasted industrially, commercially, and residentially. You know, I think there's a real fun conversation. Well, I don't know if it's fun. There's a decent discussion to be had about how we treat the best before date. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Gordon. You're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Yeah, Patty. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, first time caller. Excellent. And uh, no, uh, what I got to talk about is uh, some of them uh, great politicians we got in there. <laughs> okay. In where? In in uh, provincial <laughs> or federal government? Uh, uh, or provincial. Both? Okay. Provincial. All right. Yeah, we, we we got a member on this part of the coast. Uh, I belong to the Sewis Coast. Andrew Parsons is our member. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the last community that he should be representing. And the only time he represents there is when he looked for a vote. What community um, are you in? Uh, are you in Burgio, uh, La Poyle? Cape Ray. Cape Ray, okay. Yeah, that's his, uh, that's his uh, last uh, community. That area until we get to Red Rocks, then they goes into another one. But the, the only time we see the or hears anything from him is when he's going around the remote. He comes to my door and he, not on the door, I, I wasn't expecting to see who was when I opened the door. This is who was. And he said, uh, You know what I'm looking for? And I said, Yeah. But I said, You ain't getting it. And he said, What? Because I said, Tell me or show me what have you done. This area since you've been in. Well, he said, We negotiated uh, 350 jobs in Labrador. I said, No, you never. I said, The Labrador City done that. And he said, We negotiated the price of the shrimp. I said, No, you never. The fishermen done all that stuff. You fellas, I said, Never done that. I took credit for it. But I said, For doing anything, I said, The last time we had anything done over in this area, I said, Steve Neary was our member, and I said, uh, I forget now who was premier, and I said, Don Jameson was in Ottawa. I said, that's the last time I said, we ever got anything done over in this area. And I said, don't tell me, because I've been in this after you, watching you for a long time. Steve Neary was a relation of mine, as a matter of fact. 
Yeah. Yeah. Steve was a great fellow. He was great to us as a family guy. I was so I was pretty young to remember him as a politician, but he was certainly a lovely man. We were great friends with his children and did a lot of swimming and fooling around together. So they're good people. And there's a, a great memorial to Steve Neary over on uh, Bell Island at the Lions Club. Uh, but anyway, that's yeah. neither here nor there. He, he, he ran for nomination for the Liberals in Port of Vez, and he lost out. So he ran as an independent. Eh? And uh, I tell you what they done to him. They give, uh, well, we had Al Evans as a member, never never rock in the pot. And I guess now who runs against Al Evans uh, for nomination. And Al Evans runs as an uh, independent. And uh, they wouldn't let Steve Neary, uh, the, the community, well, he used to used to be the school at that time uh, for having speech. He's still in the back, back of a pickup on the grounds, and this is where he had his uh, that's where he had his speech to in the back of a pickup. And I see half a cape was there on the on the hill. On the ones that were there, wouldn't the ones that wouldn't let that valley. So he got in anyway, and. At that time, I believe, uh, he had a uh, little bit to do with the balance of power. So he had the he had of them both by the, yeah, string around both of them. But uh, he, he went with the liberals anyway. And uh, he was premier for, for a little while, I believe. Who? Unless, uh, Steve Neary. No, no, he wasn't. He spent most of his career as a backbencher. He was a federal yeah, politician I, as well. No, you, uh, I, I, no, I thought, I thought at the time the the the, the premier quit and he was Dixon. He moved up. What they call interim premier? He was interim party leader. But that's what. Uh, da, 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 da. Well, no, they were in opposition then. That was when <laughs> Moore's. Hold on a second, Gordon. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I think that was when Moores was in. So the leader of the opposition then was a fellow named Len Sterling, if I remember correctly. He didn't win his seat in that election, which I'm pretty sure was 1982, and Steve took Lynn over. Sterling, Lynn, Lynn Sterling, he never got it, no. That's right, but, he didn't uh, win his seat. I, I believe, I believe uh, Steve Neary, an interim leader or something. He was, party. but they were in opposition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, no, well, one thing about it, when he got something done, he... He was something like Eddie Joyce. I mean, he ain't got enough for Eddie Joyce is in there yet. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. I'm going to ask okay. you a question. So if you, you're talking about that your member currently hasn't done anything for you, what are some of the things you think need to be done in the, the district of Burgess Laporte or uh, right there in Cape Ray? For one thing, for one thing our, the top move bringing in tourists and that. But the first thing they get, they get to do is do the highway so the tourists can drive over it. Fair enough. I mean, there's there's paddles out there. I mean, uh, I must say that the, the pack of highway workers out there now they're doing a pretty good job at it. But when they pave the roads, there's none of them, none of them construction workers companies knows what now they're doing. I mean, I I uh, worked on uh, asphalt. I was out on spreaders. I was on rollers. And I, I, done, well, I worked with a company. I can't say what, what the company name was, right? And if we done a job like them fellas are doing, we've been all hurt. I mean, when you truck an ice shot, 
two hours or two and a half hours over a highway from Corner or Stephenville to Port of Ass, uh, the time you get set out there, it's cold. It's too cold. They don't roll good. And the water that's on the roller don't know to run the loader, uh, to run them. I know I was at it. And uh, you can count every load of hash shot that he dumps, too. And uh, when you join that, you know what I'm talking about, when you join the hash shot, you're not supposed to be able to see the joint. It was done right. They, got no, uh, they never had no sweepers, never had no records. And I asked them out the one time, <laughs> did, uh, did any of them, or did the engineer know what he was doing? And what he said, I'm the engineer. I said, I don't to your face. I said, you always get the kickback from that company. I said, let them get away. I said, what they're doing? I said, no, I don't know what they're doing. And he asked me, he said, what do you know about it? I said, you worry. I said, if I had the asphalt here in a file that I put out, I said, you paid this? I said, from Conrad Pond. I said, right in Port of Ass. No problem. Four lanes. I said, I work right across the island. Well, Gordon, I appreciate your time, especially as a first-time caller today. Thanks a lot. Hopefully you'll do it again. Oh, well, last time I called before, but uh, something came up, I had, I had to take off. No so problem. It was nice, nice talking to you. Nice to have you on. And I, I hope uh, Andrew Patton calls you from underneath that rock down there. <laughs> Stay in touch, Gordon. <laughs> okay, buddy. All the best. Nice talking to you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, last word this morning goes to line number one. Good morning, Melissa. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Great today. How about you? Good. Um, I'm just calling in about a friend of ours who had a, a very bad accident on Friday and just wanted to bring some awareness to the GoFundMe we have set up. What kind of accident? What happened? Uh, it was a work accident. He fell off a piece of equipment and unfortunately now he's going to be paralyzed from the chest down. Oh my God. Is that here in the yeah. province? Yes. Yeah, it was in St. John's. Well, I don't know if I saw that news story or not, but that's terrible news. Poor man. Yes, yeah, absolutely devastating, um, especially for his wife and his children. Um, we have a GoFundMe set up, and it's called The Stewart Family Needs Our Help. So I just wanted to get that out there. If anybody wanted to have a look at it or possibly donate or maybe donate some time or anything, they could find me on Facebook to help with renovations. If they have time they can spare or materials or anything like that, would so be a huge help. To find you on Facebook, so your your last name is Melissa. It's Dix, right? Dix, yep, okay. D-I-C-K-S. Um, and my profile picture is of my husband and I. We just got married a few weeks ago, and Sean was actually the groomsman in our wedding. Oh, my. Well, congratulations on your wedding, and I'm sorry to hear about your friend. And how do you spell Stuart if people want to go to the GoFundMe site? Is it S-T-U-A-R-T or S-T-E-W-A-R-D, or how, does they, how do they spell it? It's S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Okay. Just to make sure, because there's a couple of spellings of the name Stuart, so that's good. I'm really sorry to hear about the poor young fella. Is he, I, I assume he's in the hospital? He is. He's currently in the ICU, so he'll be oh in the hospital for a few weeks and then rehab for a few months. Oh, yeah, it just happened Friday. That was a dumb question. I apologize. My brain runs out of gas around 12 o'clock. Um, Mine's out of gas since Friday. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine, you know, and obviously close friends if they were part of your wedding party. So let's see if we can help the family because the needs are going to be great and they're going to be immediate. The house is obviously going to have to be renovated to accommodate the poor man. So if you have the opportunities, uh, GoFundMe, just Google up GoFundMe, you'll go to their site and you can just uh, type in the Stewart family needs our help. Is that what it was? Yes. Okay, the Stewart family needs our help. 
Or you can go directly to Melissa Dick's Facebook page and get some other contact information and an opportunity to support the Stewart family. I'm glad you called, but I'm really sorry to hear about your friend. I wish you good luck. Keep us in the loop how it's going. Thank you. I will. Okay, Melissa. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. You never know, man, when you go to work, right? You know, we're still thinking about what happened out at uh, Come By Chance. It won't be reopened until at least the earliest is the 19th of this month, is what we've been told. But that poor fella, go to work, and the next thing you know, the call comes home. you got to get to the hospital. Man, oh, man. All right, let's check on Twitter. Uh, we're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.